I think it's actually the first time that anybody's uh, watched a kind of full-length porn movie in the scanner. And that did involve me as the, <laughs> the nominated person watching really a very, very large amount of porn in order to pick out particular things that we were... The things we do for science. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds like amazing work because you're, you're sort of linking... A, a physical measure you're linking something that's happening in the brain and perhaps also some subjective you know what people are reporting type measures kind of in one in one result like the, those those studies are made like quite rare hello everyone and welcome back to this week's episode this week it's anya and alex and we've got some fantastic guests for you today we are meeting with Natalie Ertel, who's currently a research assistant at Invicro, whilst also registered for a PhD at Imperial College London. And Natalie specialises in functional MRI applications in psychopharmacology. Her current research is focused on sex hormones, cannabis and psychedelics. With Natalie, we have Dr. Matt Wall, who's a psychologist, cognitive neuroscientist and fMRI specialist at Invicro and Imperial College London. Dr. Wall also has a slant towards clinical studies and psychopharmacology with research interests in cannabis, psychedelics, sex hormones and addiction. Dr. Wall also happens to be psychology's top one-man band and if you want to see more, check out his Twitter. I'm so excited to have with me Dr. Matt Wall and Natalie Ertel, um, and we will be talking about their research on all things to do with sex hormones and difficulties with psychosexual function. Now, I will be completely honest in that this is quite uncharted territory for me, um, which is slightly ridiculous given that I have been to medical school, which I think is the point that you make in lots of the work that you've done, that this is an area we know surprisingly little, little about in terms of what happens in the brain with regards to psychosexual function, and that that's something that has perhaps limited developments in treatments that we have for people. So I hope that we can find out about what you know and what has been learned and what kind of things you're interested in terms of future research. Now, as we get started, I wonder if I could just get you to say hello and a little bit about yourselves as we meet today. Hi, I'm Natalie. Um, I'm doing my PhD at Imperial with Matt. Um, and I also work for Invicro, where we have the MRI machines, where we're doing lots of this research at the moment. Hi, everyone. I'm Matt. Um, I also work at Invicro and Imperial, and I do fMRI research mostly. I've uh, done that for about 20 years at various places, and we work on a lot of different things, including sex hormones, cannabis, psychedelics, and other things. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming to join us today. So what, what do we, when we talk about psychosexual function, what, what does that mean? What kind of things does that in, involve or encompass? So with sexual arousal and desire, it's all kind of mediated in the limbic system and then the kind of like frontal cortex of the brain. And there's like a balance between these excitatory and inhibitory um, projections. Um, so what we think's going wrong, so we research hypoactive sexual desire disorder or HSDD, 
Um, and that's where people have a loss of desire and they're distressed by it. So what we think is going wrong is that they've got too little activity in the excitatory bits and too much activity in the inhibitory bits. And so there's like a top-down inhibition of the sexual response, um, which means that they don't get to experience that sexual desire and arousal. But interestingly, lots of what we know about sexual desire and arousal comes from animal research. So that's where we've got this kind of like limbic system driving it but what we found with lots of fMRI papers is there's actually a lot more cortical stuff other than just the frontal cortex and we think in the human sexual response it's obviously a bit different because people have sex for other reasons than just reproducing which is what is looked at in animal research so there's actually a lot more stuff going on um, and yeah using fMRI rather than just animal models we're like starting to learn a lot more which is quite interesting. That's really cool. And and like you say, it sounds, yeah, humans work differently to how animals do. Yeah, it's no not going to be news to anybody when I say that in humans, sex is complicated. Obviously, there's, <clears throat> there's a whole lot of different things going on with the sexual response. It's not just brain stuff. So, you know, us as neuroscientists, we naturally focus on that side of things. But obviously, there's a lot of other hormonal, physiological, vascular stuff involved in the sexual response it's a real kind of brain body interaction and i wonder if we could get a bit more into the nitty-gritty so when we talk about the limbic system now my knowledge of this is going to be basic but i hopefully that will be helpful to other people who might be listening as well we're talking about an area of the brain that's important in emotions what else what else do we mean when we talk about the limbic system yes exactly so it's all the, the squishy, funny-shaped bits in the middle of the brain okay. rather than the wrinkly bits on the outside, really. And all those bits in the middle, uh, or some of them, um, are, yes, they're heavily involved in things like emotion, reward processes, and things like that. And they have, they have multiple functions, really. So there's no, you know, sex is a, is a kind of high-level function, so there's no kind of primary sex bit of the brain that you can point to. Mm-hmm. and say this bit does sex it's it's a whole complicated network of areas which are involved in other emotional responses and reward processes and things like that as well mm-hmm. and so that's where it gets important to think about networks so how do how does that part of the brain connect up with other parts of the brain yeah exactly to, and i imagine makes your work even more difficult sure. than it might yeah, be it's always more complicated <laughs> than than you think yeah and then when we so you then you mentioned the frontal parts of the brain and these are parts that are quite special to humans yeah that's right so um as natalie was saying there's a lot of uh, as well as the the squishy bits in the middle there's a lot of stuff in the wrinkly bit in the cortex and there's some there's some areas in the, in the middle of the frontal lobe um in humans which are also very involved in uh, emotion positive emotions particularly and reward there as well uh, and you have these two sets of responses. You have um, the kind of low-level uh, response from the from the limbic system, from the middle the middle bits of the brain, which is kind of similar to the sexual response you see in in other animals. Mm-hmm. Um, but as well with humans, uh, you have all this extra stuff on top. And if those two things are are not 
working together in the right way, this seems to to cause problems. So you might be you might be thinking uh, overthinking it essentially, mm. uh, kind of engaging in self monitoring when you're. <laughs> Say it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Engaging in sexual well, acts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Having sex. Oh, doing where the dirty. I, where should I take? <laughs> Getting down. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, the the limbic system is sometimes called the reptilian brain. Is that mm. fair enough to say? And that's because, um, yeah, that was a bit that was very early evolved and we share with lots of animals. And that's where, like, there's lots of dopamine, which is kind of the neurotransmitter that makes us want things and try and get things. Um, and then the cortex bit is more later evolved and is disproportionately bigger in humans. Is that mm. fair to say? Um, and it's kind of the bit that makes us human. But other other animals do have a smaller frontal cortex as well but yeah basically the frontal cortex is generally the more inhibitory bit and the bit that's saying come on you can't be trying to have sex all the time you can't be trying to get food all the time you've got to concentrate on what you're doing and then the limbic system is the dopamine bit that's going no go and get it and then, so it's like a <laughs> balance between there and in any psychosexual disorder it's kind of like where there's a a disbalance between those two bits so in hsdd we basically think there's too much inhibitory bit from the front telling the limbic system to stop and then in like porn addiction or something like that there's like too much stuff in the limbic system and not enough inhibitory control so it's just like a a balance between the human bit and the reptilian bit that's like kind of off it sounds quite freudian yeah i suppose i suppose it is a bit <laughs> Could you expand on that, Alex? I've just started on Freud. You're thinking id and uh, superego and stuff. Precisely. So Freud would have outlined in his, I think, structural or topographical, I'm sorry, um, psychoanalytic supervisors in the past, please forgive me. Uh, but he would have posited that he had the id that was responsible for our primal drives that operates on the pleasure principle. And then we have obviously our superego, which is more the internalized shoulds of society you should do this you should not do this which you could say neurobiologically is represented by the prefrontal cortex and then obviously we have our ego which is our basic sense of ourself which is the real reality oriented part of ourself that has to try and come up with some balance between between the two yeah i mean freud was a neurologist and he knew about uh, the brain and stuff uh, i don't think he ever kind of mapped those concepts onto particular brain regions particularly but he was very interested in sex <laughs> um, so yeah I mean I, I hadn't actually thought about it in that way because I don't tend to gravitate towards Freudian explanations of things but he did get a lot of things right kind of by accident but <laughs> but still he did get a lot of things right and yeah in this case uh, I think it perhaps useful because you do have these low level functions uh, which are being inhibited by often by in hsdd often by concerns about oh, i'm feeling self-conscious about my body or i'm feeling self-conscious about um what society's expectations of me when it comes to sexual behavior uh that kind of thing so it's, it's this kind of over self-monitoring that kind of takes you out of the experience a bit um, and doesn't let you fully engage with it, doesn't let that that bottom up, the, the, the low-level stuff happen in the way that it should. That's the idea, anyway. 
It sounds like there's something about trying to be in the moment. Yes, exactly. Mindfulness as well. There we go. We've got Freud and third wave <laughs> cognitive and behavioral Buddhism. therapies. Yeah. Um, and I wonder if there were, I know you've kind of talked broadly about these, about these parts of the brain. Mm. Were there any particular areas within them that you were very interested in before the results that we'll come to talk about came out? Or again, just if we're thinking about orientation, are there any words or names that we want to kind of highlight to people that we're, we're going to come to talk about? I mean, our, our so our initial thoughts uh, about what we would maybe see in these studies were basically related to the limbic system. So areas like the amygdala, the striatum, mm-hmm. um, places like that. And that turned out to be completely wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Spoilers. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> well, spoilers. <laughs> Surprising results are the best kind. Um, okay, so let's come to think about what kind of work it is that you've done to to explore some of these issues. And I guess in terms of how you do this, I mean, how do you go about designing studies or what, what do you do to figure out, you know, what's going on in someone's mind or body in terms of sex, like what they're attracted to? How do you get people to recreate these kind of things in the lab? Well, yeah, it's a real challenge. <laughs> um, so we've never really done anything quite like this before. But because we both work for this company called Invecro, where, where we do kind of commercial work for pharma companies, we had this company come along who had this sex drug, essentially. It's a drug called bremelanotide. It's marketed as a, a name called Vilesi. And they were interested in... Done, we'd done a little bit of previous work with the, the, the imperial endocrinologists on uh, another sex hormone. But this company came along and they were really interested in us doing a particular thing with this with their drug to check out how it was working in the brain. And, you know, when a company comes along and offers you lots of money to do research, you say yes. So uh, that's what we did. And so we had to kind of develop a lot of this stuff from scratch. We got some advice from other kind of sex researchers that we managed to contact. But, yeah, we had to do a lot of development of uh video tasks for use in the scanner we decided we wanted to use videos as the main stimulus when people were in the scanner and you can imagine the kinds of videos that we were you know interested in using um sexy videos sexy videos okay let's okay let's let's just be clear it was porn right okay. <laughs> let's just let's just call it what it is and that did involve me as the, the nominated person watching really a very very large amount of porn in order to pick out particular things that we were you know particular scenes and and find suitable ones uh yeah my wife was very understanding (laughs) the things we do for science yeah (laughs) sure um it got really boring after a while (laughs) i have to say um uh so yeah we 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 did things like that so i you know to develop these tasks I picked out a bunch of scenes and then we got a bunch of other people to rate them and and uh, pick out the sexiest 20 out of these 100 that I'd that I'd uh, selected and edited and that that became our the stimulus we used in our final task um so it was quite a bit of work doing that kind of thing in preparation for that study 
Uh, we were using fMRI to um, try and look at the sex response. Um, and yeah, as Matt said, we were using videos. And obviously when you're watching a video, lots of stuff is going on in the brain. So if we just showed them a video, we'd obviously get a lot of activation in the visual cortex, but that's not necessarily in response to just the sexy videos. So we had to come up with a good control as well. Um, so we came up with the idea of exercise videos. So we got videos of a man and a woman doing a workout session together because then it's the same amount of people and similar amounts of movement <laughs> and we use that as a control and then you can take away the brain activity from the sexy and the exercise and then you're left with the difference so that's how you kind of isolate the sexual response in the task that we used. And then I think you've also done other work in terms of looking at how just sexual attraction and I'm wondering how I think I saw something about Chanel number no. five being. <laughs> I wonder if you could if you could speak to that in terms of any other tests or tasks that you might use. Yeah. To- oh, so we've done we've done quite a lot over the years with with this sex hormone kispeptin with the Imperial Group who are really focused on that. Um, yeah. So we did one. The initial study that we did a long time ago was just using pictures. So we had various kinds of pictures kind of neutral ones of, of a, a table or a book as the control. And then we had some some sex pictures, some some porn. And we also had kind of romantic kind of couple bonding, happy couple walking along a beach, laughing together, that kind of thing. And actually we got we got um kind of uh, better looking results from the romantic ones uh, in terms of how Kispeptin changed the the brain response. Um, than to the the more overtly sexual ones, so that led us on to thinking, well, maybe maybe kiss peptin is more related to kind of couple bonding mm-hmm. rather than the sexual response per se, or maybe it's both. Um, so yeah, so in our more recent studies, we also included a task where we just got people to rate how attractive they found a bunch of. Uh, faces mm-hmm. so there's there's databases of faces that are available where people have already you know a big bunch of people have already rated them for attractiveness so you can pick the very attractive ones or the not so attractive ones and we were interested in looking at the whether the effect of this this drug bromelanotide or or kispeptin in the later studies whether that affected that attractiveness uh, kind of processes as well as well as the the more kind of graphic sexual <laughs> sexual mm-hmm. ones okay and in terms of who you were studying uh, kind of who the participants have been in these various studies were you sort of looking at men women non-binary heterosexual what, what have you studied so far and 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 where do you think things might go in the future as well um so at the moment we have we did premenopausal women for the bromelanotide study mm. um, and then we've done premenopausal women and men with HSDD for the kispeptin study mm. um, and yeah we're looking at in the future trying to do postmenopausal women as well mm. um, but yeah HSDD affects quite a wide range of people mm. um, and at the moment there's only two drugs available for premenopausal women um postmenopausal women can take testosterone but it's got quite a lot of side effects and can increase chances of breast cancer and stuff as well um and there's nothing available for men with hsdd so mm. it's a uh, yeah 
it's definitely an understudied area um, and lots of people need it. <laughs> About the populations, this is always something that, that people say like on Twitter and things like that. Why are you just doing straight men or straight women? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Why aren't you doing gay men or gay women or, or non-binary people? And I was like, yeah, I'd love to do that. That's great, you know. Um, but uh, I don't have the money all the time. <laughs> you know, um, we've got to start somewhere. And there's always a there's a big problem with doing this stuff is that people's preferences for sexual material vary quite a lot. Mm. Um, it's just not it's just not practical, really, to try and tailor the the experiments or the stimuli to people's individual preferences. You just kind of have to um, develop a set of stimuli and experiments that are just about good enough for, for, you know, most people. You get a group of people to rate your videos and you pick the ones that on average people rate rate the best. Mm-hmm. But they're not going to be for everybody, you know. People's preferences vary quite a lot with this stuff. And not not just even within even if you're just talking about, say, you know, straight men, their preferences will vary quite a lot. And then, of course, you've got people with different sexualities and 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 things like that. So, yeah, it's it's not perfect. And I would love to do lots of different groups, gay people, straight people, um, whatever. But um, hopefully we'll get there. Um, But at the moment, this is what we've done. Yeah. So if anyone's listening with a big pot of money that wants to fund some further research, you're, you're up for it. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Okay. Um, and in terms of, I guess, let's talk a bit about, about what you found, sort of what, what has come out with these various drugs in terms of, you know, do they seem to work? And perhaps that's, that's further away from the types of questions that you were trying to answer. But, you know, wh- what is it that they do and, and how does that relate to some of the ideas that we have about what might go wrong? in psychosexual function? So, yeah, the bremelanotide study, we found that in response to the sexual videos compared to the exercise videos, there was a strong deactivation of the secondary somatosensory cortex. Um, And, yeah, this is an area which takes in emotional and social and kind of sensory cues from the external world and then like helps women process or people process um, how they like should present themselves in the world based on that and it's an area which is thought to be hyperactive in HSDD so by deactivating this area we thought that this might be how the women are experiencing more sexual desire Um, and yeah we asked them uh, in the 24 hours after they had the drug did they feel an increase in sexual desire and they did a lot more compared to placebo so yes it did seem to work and yeah we think by reducing that hyperactivity in the cortical areas it allowed for a sexual response the opposite of what we expected as i said earlier so we we expected these drugs kind of naively just to kind of boost the lower level responses but actually it turned out how they seem to work uh, is that they they reduce the 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 top-down influence they remove the inhibition uh, and that seems to be the case did you guys gather any data so obviously subjectively you gathered that there was a increase in sexual arousal based on imaging 
but in t- and in terms of the participants' experience, they felt more sexually aroused, and did they experience any anything else phenomenologically? Nausea, <laughs> which is un- one of the unfortunate side effects of, of bromelanotide. So about one in ten um, people uh, feel quite nauseous with it, um, which is not sexy, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, um, yeah, we got them to rate the videos that they were watching as well, but we didn't find a significant difference between the ratings, but. That could just be a problem with rating. <laughs> I have to say, it's not bromelanotide is not a fantastic drug, so there are side effects. A lot of a lot of women do get um, nauseous with it. It's actually only licensed for women at the moment. It it, it increases. Uh, yeah, there's been there's been quite large phase three clinical trials done on it, and it increases. So it increases uh, women's kind of sexual desire somewhat. Uh, you know, a little bit. It leads to, you know, one extra satisfying sexual encounter a month on average or something like that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this is not this is not a, a, a fantastic blockbuster drug. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't work, for instance, as well as Viagra for men. Um, bromelanotide has been around for a very long time. It was discovered in the 60s. Um, and it was actually in development um, by a pharma company around the same time as Viagra for 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 male impotence uh, and then viagra came out which was a competing drug at the time and it worked great and everybody loved it and it was a huge blockbuster drug and so bromelanotide got shelved for a long time until recently when this other company uh, tried to develop it for women yeah the thing about viagra for hsdd is that part of the hsdd diagnosis is feeling distressed by your loss of desire. So Viagra is actually not a good treatment for men with HSDD because although it might allow them to perform, it doesn't reduce that stress associated with not wanting to do it. Um, So, yeah, it's important that we still find another one for men as well because, yeah, it's different to erectile dysfunction. It works in a very different way. So Viagra uh, works on the the vascular system in in the body and bromelanotide... uh, at least it's thought that it works in the brain and, and we've provided some evidence that it does. Uh, so it's kind of a, almost like a true aphrodisiac, if you like, from the, in the kind of old sense of aphrodisiacs um, in that it does seem to increase desire and it does it by binding to receptors in the brain. I think that's a really important point because I, I guess for, for some people listening, they might think exactly, exactly what you say. So, you know, we've got Viagra for men, seems to work great, but there's more to men's sexual experience than having an erection. And and that's the main thing that you say Viagra does. It it doesn't seem to have any impact on how they feel about sex or kind of being interested or attracted or or even necessarily the enjoyment of it. Obviously, there's a lot of talk about um, how women are perceived in sex and stuff and how they might find it difficult to talk about it. But I think men are often perceived as wanting to have sex and being all laddie and stuff all the time and so maybe men who are experiencing hsdd might feel even more like pressure to not talk about it or not talk about it with their doctor so yeah i think there's a lot of pressure on men as well Mm. um with things like this and in terms of you know anyone who's listening who who might be having difficulties the, the numbers are quite big in terms of people who have difficult have hsdd or or difficulties with psychosexual function i think i can't remember the percentage i don't know if you yeah it's about um 10 to 15 percent of women and about eight percent of men 
Um, but again, it could be more than that because I think um, there's often problems with people not wanting to talk to their doctor about this sort of thing and patients often expect their doctor to maybe bring it up whereas doctors kind of expect the patient to bring it up and so there's like a bit of a disconnect there. So it, it could even be higher than that but that's numbers that we've got at mm. the moment. Mm-hmm. Important to say that just a lack of interest in sex is not, not a problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of, you know, many people might might be like that um, and there are people that kind of identify as, as asexual mm-hmm. and that's fine and they're perfectly happy with that. The, the diagnosis of HSTD is particularly about uh, you know, a lack of interest in sex that's causing distress. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you're in a relationship mm-hmm. uh, and one partner is much less interested than the other mm-hmm. or if you're trying to have children mm-hmm. um, or, you know, any other kind of situation where it might be causing problems for you, mm-hmm. um, that's that's when you, know, you have the, the, the diagnosis of HSTD. Mm-hmm. And it's quite, a, it's quite a controversial diagnosis. Uh, I mean, it is, it, is, it is a thing, it's in the DSM, but there is a lot of chatter around it talking about, well, you know, you're just kind of, you're medicalizing people's actual normal experience and it's quite, it's quite normal and natural for, for instance, for, for sex to fall off a bit in long-term relationships and, and things like that. And you're trying to medicalize this experience, which... Uh, which you know and it's all driven by pharma companies to then sell drugs to to fix it and that kind of thing and i think there's a there's a fair amount of truth in that to be honest but as well it is a thing it does cause a lot of issues for people uh, in relationships and and that kind of thing but it, it, no i think it's it's really important i guess it's it's reminding all of us to just return to what what the person what the person's individual experience is and trying to peel away the layers of societal pressure as much as possible because as yeah it's important for the individual person to know like it's okay if you don't want to have sex it's okay if that's not important for you but if it's in some way not happening because you're distressed let's make sure that we're thinking in science about how to help you yeah and to me again bringing it back to a more psychological point of view it does sound like your work and what your imaging shows that kind of top-down inhibition does indicate it does map on to people's very real experience of feeling a very very high level of self-consciousness and shame around sex which can of course happen not because of a quote-unquote disease state like a purely biological process but because of all sorts of reasons all sorts of reasons that people could feel let's say, unnecessarily self-conscious about sex. And it's only natural that that would get in, get in the way of them having the sex life that they want. Um, my question is, because what you're saying in terms of top-down inhibition from the prefrontal cortex sounds quite similar to OCD. And coincidentally, I'm recording a podcast about OCD right after this. And I'm wondering, similar to OCD, which is amenable to very... Um, psychological approaches like CBT, exposure and response prevention. I'm wondering if your work might suggest that problems with sexual dysfunction might also be amenable to psychological approaches as well. I mean, yeah. So, I mean, part of the, the, the kind of toolbox of therapies that we have for HSDD is definitely psychological therapy. Uh, um, and that could be, yeah, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy based or just kind of more general kind of counselling based. Yeah, for sure. 
I don't think anybody's. I mean, one of the 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 main treatments for OCD people tend to get put on SSRIs. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe we'll come on to this later, but there's there's a lot of issues around SSRIs and sexual function mm-hmm. uh, as well, which is something that we're really interested in as well. Let me definitely bring you back to that. But I want to talk about the second drug that you've mentioned, which aside from having a really great name of Kispeptin, I'm wondering, I guess, what got you said that it's something you've been studying for a really long time. And I'm wondering what's got you interested in it and what kind of work? So it was something that I kind of fell into by accident, really. Uh, So as I said, we work with a bunch of endocrinologists uh, at Imperial College led by uh, a guy called Professor Waljit Dillow. And they've been working on kispeptin for a very long time, and uh, they've would develop it. They have developed it actually as a treatment for infertility, which works great for some particular types of infertility. On the wall of uh, Walgett's office, there's a, a great big collage picture with, with all these kispeptin babies that have been born since he started working on it, which is lovely. And kispeptin is a sex hormone, and it it kind of sits at the top of the reproductive hormone axis axis. So you get a big flush of kispeptin at puberty. Mm. Mice that are kispeptin knockout mice, so they don't have the kispeptin gene, they don't go through puberty, so they don't, they don't sexually mature. So it's, it's incredibly important for that sexual uh, maturation process. And it kicks off the whole cascade of hormones that you get at puberty. It also goes up by about 7,000% in pregnancy, but we don't really know why yet. Mm. So it's an interesting one. Uh, it was only discovered about 20 years ago. It's relatively novel. Mm. And about in about 2015, a medical doctor called Alex Komnenos came to me and said, we've got this hormone. We want to do. We want to know if it's you know, working in the brain in some way. Mm. Um, there's some animal work showing that there are kispeptin receptors kind of all over the brain. Mm. Maybe it's doing something. Let's, let's do a study. So, okay, great. So we did the first kispeptin human brain study in about 2015 and it's carried on from there so one of the one of the, the the things that this group is very keen on is clinical translation they're all they're all medics they're not inter- interested just for the science they want to actually help patients which is great so after we'd done this initial study with this commercial drug we thought well let's let's use some of the these methods that we've spent a lot of time developing and let's see if it works with kispeptin as well in in a similar kind of population of hsdd people uh so that's what led us on to doing it with kispeptin and again you know and the 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 point with doing it with kispeptin is well maybe kispeptin could be another possible treatment for hsdd that won't maybe won't have the drawbacks of say testosterone treatment that natalie mentioned earlier Mm -hmm. um for postmenopausal women and things like that and you've looked at kispeptin, I think, with straight men and straight women? So far. But of course, again, we'd like to do to do more in different groups. Um, yeah, we've done one study uh, in, in women and uh, another study in men. What, what have you found? And, and I'm, I'm really interested as well in the fact that you've kind of looked at those two groups in terms of are there differences? Are, what, 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 what's it looking like? So... In the male study, we had this other kind of measure of arousal 
um, which was a bit more difficult to do in the women. Um, but yeah, we had a penile tremescence device, which they wore, um, and we got them to watch a eight minute long porn video. And yeah, we found that kisspeptin increased the penile tumescence, but in response to the video. So that's really important to note because it's not Viagra just increasing it mm-hmm. all the time. It was like in response to the video. So it's kind of showing that it's increasing arousal and desire in response to sexual cues, which mm-hmm. suggests that it's yeah increasing desire rather than just increasing the erection. blood flow yeah. into <laughs> into the penis. Um, but yeah, so that was really interesting. And we also used that measure of the change in the penile tumescence over time to look at where the brain was changing at the same time as the penis. And Amazing. we kind of found that with kispeptin, there was an increase in visual stuff as the um, as the penile tumescence changes were going on so this suggests that um kispeptin is maybe increasing visual attention to the sexual cues which is then increasing this um objective measure of arousal as well so that was really interesting probably our most interesting result but we didn't do a similar measure in the women Mm because it just seemed to be a little bit more invasive to do in women um but yeah it's something we would maybe like to do in the future but obviously an mri machine is a big magnet so you're limited yeah and doing you've got to make sure you've got things that don't have metal and are not going to heat up or <laughs> we found these non-magnetic devices that we could safely attach to uh, the the guys yeah um we haven't really managed to find an equivalent one for women that we think is going to be safe. And the last thing we want to do is burn people in that area. <laughs> I mean, what would it be? What would you measure in, in so women? So there are devices, insertable devices, okay. which can which are kind of optical sensors. So they uh, measure blood flow, okay. basically. So that they just measure uh, changes in blood flow in that area. Yeah. Cool. I mean, that sounds like amazing work because you're, you're sort of linking... A, a physical measure you're linking something that's happening in the brain and perhaps also some subjective you know what people are reporting type measures kind of in one in one result like the, those those studies are made like quite rare and that's really cool that you also saw a result with this drug yeah we were we were really happy with the design of this one so mm. i think it's actually the first time that anybody's uh, watched a kind of full-length porn movie in the scanner. Uh, so people have shown videos before, but it, it's usually been kind of short clips of 10 or 20 seconds. But what this this um, kind of approach allowed us to do, and this is an approach that's that's kind of getting more popular, which is, which is people just essentially watching movies um, and recording brain activity. And it's quite different to the normal uh, approach you use in fMRI, where you have, um, as Natalie mentioned before, you have uh, an experimental stimulus and a control stimulus, and you subtract one from the other. So in our case, it was the the sexy videos and the exercise videos. Mm-hmm. Um, having people just watch a continuous movie is, is a, quite a different approach. But what it allowed us to do in this case was, first of all, record uh, their data from their penis uh, using these devices and also while they were watching it they had this dial Mm -hmm. in their hands and a a little scale on the screen Mm -hmm. Um, and we just asked them to just continuously rate their subjective feelings of arousal as well Mm -hmm. so we had the brain data their subjective reports of how they were feeling and the kind of more objective physiological data from their 
uh, from the penis. And it, it, yes, it all turned out to be interesting stuff. And I guess that is working towards just making things more relevant and applicable to the real world. Yes. I mean, people call this stuff naturalistic fMRI. Okay. I mean, and you're still, you're still stuck inside a little metal tube that's banging away. Mm-hmm. But uh, so it's, not, it's not, you know, completely naturalistic. But watching videos is something that we do a lot of these days. Um, and it, it's a bit more close to, to, to real life than, than just looking at abstract things on a screen, or pictures and things like that. And I wonder if I could bring you back to talking about SSRIs because as a as a psychiatrist, I think this is I, I'd love to hear what what you're looking at because it's obviously something that a lot of our patients really struggle with the drugs that we prescribe for things like anxiety, depression. Because with SSRIs, a major side effect is people experience problems with sexual function. What what are you looking at? What are you interested in? So serotonin is basically one of the main inhibitory neurotransmitters of the sexual response and that's because serotonin it makes you feel happy because it makes you kind of feel content so when you're hungry you get a big um, influx of dopamine to go and make you get food and then once you've eaten you get serotonin you feel full and you feel happy and you've like had enough and it's the same with sex as well so yeah the dopamine makes you go and get it and then once you've had it you get a big influx of serotonin and then you feel happy and calm and like you you're full and you've had enough basically um so yeah with depression you have ssris which mean there's more serotonin around and that makes you feel happier but then that's also making you feel happy because it's making you feel content and like you don't need to go and like seek out this stuff anymore so yeah that's one of the one of the big problems with them and yeah you can it can end up kind of re-causing depression because you lose that sex drive and sex is obviously makes people happy and connected with their partners so if you lose the the drive again it can actually kind of make the depression worse so something yeah something we haven't looked at yet but we're interested in so a lot of the psychedelic work is looking at helping depression um and that obviously isn't gonna you don't have to keep taking it every day so it's not going to impact your serotonin system all the time one of the other studies that that we've been involved with uh, over the last few years is um a comparison between these kind of new approaches to treating depression with psychedelic drugs and standard depression treatments like selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors ssris um, so, yeah, there was a big trial at Imperial College where they compared psychedelic therapy for depression with a kind of standard six-week course of escitalopram, which is like a first-line treatment for uh, depression, an SSRI. And they weren't particularly focused on sexual outcomes, but they did include one kind of sexual function questionnaire. And uh, as expected, they did uh, show uh, a, a kind of decrease in sexual function for the escitalopram group and no change really for the for the psilocybin group so and and that tallies with other data from that cohort which i we've been working on recently as well so just looking at general emotional function so they did a kind of emotional faces task Mm -hmm. and one of the other side effects of ssris that a lot of people report is emotional blunting Mm -hmm. so just a general kind of reduction in the range or the strength of the the emotions that people say they experience so people say they you know i don't cry at sad movies anymore or 
uh, I don't get, don't feel moved by the music that I used to listen to and really enjoy and things like that. And what we found with these emotional face fMRI tasks is that we see a big drop in the the escitalopram group in terms of their emotional responsiveness to these to these stimuli but no change in the psilocybin group so it seems like the psilocybin is having a, still having a, a really good antidepressant effect mm-hmm. it's still breaking people out of their depression but it doesn't have these these side effects like emotional blunting or maybe even not the sexual function mm-hmm. a few other people are starting to talk about using psychedelics like psilocybin or LSD to treat uh, various kinds of sexual problems. But it's really early days for that year. Um, I don't know if there's even any kind of early trials going on, but it's definitely a, a thing that will happen at some point. We're also interested in looking at whether kispeptin might be useful for, for people that are having SSRI-related mm. uh, sexual sexual problems. There's actually a cohort, there's a, there's a fairly rare group of, of patients that tends to be mostly men where they have this kind of persistent reduction in their libido after SSRIs. I think it's called post-SSRI sexual function syndrome or something like that. So even after they stop the, the, the course of SSRIs, they find that their, their uh, sexual interest and libido does, hasn't, doesn't, doesn't come back. So that's, that's a group that we're perhaps particularly interested in looking at with kispeptin maybe. You guys have obviously been researching sex for a long time and it's really refreshing to see that neurobiological lens being put on it. And I'm wondering to both of you, you know, what what has surprised you the most? What have you learned about sex and or romance <laughs> at the level of the brain that has surprised you the most? <laughs> for me, it was uh, what I alluded to, alluded to earlier where I, I, I assumed it was... Uh, perhaps this is just because I'm a guy. I don't know. Uh, I assumed it was all fairly low level uh, in terms of the brain function and the brain regions and quite kind of animalistic in a way. But once once I started reading this stuff and getting into the literature, you know, obviously it's a lot more complicated than that. And there's all lots and lots of other brain regions involved that you wouldn't necessarily expect. I mean, one of the one of the regions that, that Natalie mentioned earlier the secondary somatosensory cortex. Um, it's a, a touch area, but it's a kind of complex touch area. So it's not the primary somatosensory cortex, which is uh, involved in the primary sense of touch. It's it's the secondary somatosensory cortex integrates the sense of touch with emotional and social information. So it's you know it's very important in species that do social grooming, like a lot of uh, monkeys and apes and things like that where the grooming has a particular social function and the beta male will groom the alpha male in the troop and that kind of thing and obviously once you stop and think about it touch has very important social functions for humans as well you know we hug when we meet each other uh, and there's particular kind of you know if you hold the hug a bit too long and it gets a bit weird then you know uh, has very subtle and complex social meanings involved in how you touch other people and how they touch you and then when it comes to romantic partners and sex obviously there's a whole other dimension to that so uh, th- that's that's what I was most surprised about. I guess it was it was how complicated it all is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Um, I'm going to bring us towards a close, but I wonder if there's anything that we haven't talked about or any any brain regions that we've missed out, anything else that you think would be important for us to think about together? Yeah, so we've done the primary analysis and got some papers out of this research already um, for yeah all our primary outcomes, but I'm doing my PhD on this, so I want to do a bit more extra analysis, and I'm really interested in comparing the male and female HSDD response, which we have. And yeah, ideally, we've only looked at HSDD with placebo versus drug at the moment. Um, And I'd really like to get a group of healthy people in to compare that brain response as well. So hopefully in the future, I'll have more to tell you about that. Um, Yeah, that's ongoing at the moment. (laughs) So to sort of probe the question around if HSDD difficulties are related to the brain regions in, in people who aren't saying that they're distressed by anything to do with their psychosexual function, seeing seeing what the differences are with people who are experiencing distress with the drugs. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um, and also, yeah, when we were writing the paper for the male HSDD um, study, it was, it was quite hard because there aren't a lot of papers to do with male HSDD at all, were there? So a lot of the stuff we based it on was papers which were actually looking at female HSDD um so yeah it would be really interesting to see if the if there is if HSDD is a gender specific or there's differences in the gender whether it's just a overall disorder which has the similar brain correlates in both sexes so yeah that would be interesting future work to do Matt, Natalie thank you so much for coming to speak to us today it's been brilliant um and hopefully bring you back some time to think about the new things that you're working on as well thanks for having us thanks for the opportunity it's been great thank you thank Thank you. you so much